Welcome to the Sabbath School Rescue Podcast with your host, Buster Swoops and Michael Campbell. This week, I have a special and honored guest, Dr. John McVeigh, president of Walla Walla University and principal contributor to this quarter's lesson on the book of Ephesians. Together, let's find some insights that will impact our lives and our church through the book of Ephesians. The Sabbath School Rescue Podcast is hosted by Michael Campbell and Buster Swoops at the Adventist Learning Community. Together, we love learning and have 18 years of pastoral experience, and now we have the privilege to dig deeper into the study. All right, here we are, Sabbath School Rescue bonus episode, and we're so excited to have a special guest with us, the primary contributor to this quarter's lesson, which is on the book of Ephesians. We have Dr. John McVeigh, but before we introduce him, we're going to have actually Michael Campbell. Dr. Michael Campbell is going to introduce Dr. McVeigh. And so welcome, and we're very excited to, to dive in. Go ahead, Michael. All right. Well, I, I'm just excited that we have Dr. McVeigh. We have this lesson on Ephesians. And I know that Dr. McVeigh, for those who may not be familiar with him, he is a biblical scholar. His specialty with his doctoral work and dissertation focuses on the book of Ephesians. And I, I first got to know him as a professor, as the dean of the seminary. And some years ago, and just a very caring individual who, in addition to being an administrator as a teacher, but also just really, you know, just welcomed and loved students, which has always been a, a model for me of what a professor is, should be and can be, has made a significant impact on my life. So, and of course, currently, more recently, in addition to his other teaching administrative responsibilities, he currently serves as the president of Walla Walla University. So welcome Dr. McVeigh to this program. Nice to be with you, Michael. And I remember you as a wonderful student who inspired me with your love of Adventist history. And uh, you helped start some important initiatives there at, at the at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary. And some of those kind of live on today. Good luck. Well, hey, it's a privilege to, to have you. And now we want to hear you know, a little bit about the book of mm -hmm. Ephesians. They're kind of leading in with your your background, your doctoral work, but I know the book of Ephesians is something you are passionate about. Why do you care so deeply about the book of Ephesians? Well, pound for pound, Ephesians has been has been labeled the most influential document in the English language. And, you know, that might not be immediately obvious to everyone, of course. But if you go to, if you go to doctrinal statements like the Seventh-day Adventist 28 Fundamental Beliefs, you know, they tend to give a, a statement of some, some doctrine. And then at the end, they give a string of Bible verses supporting that, right? And if you'll review those kinds of statements of faith, you'll see that Ephesians is cited very frequently for such a short letter. It is theologically rich and significant and important. Fabulous. So tell us just, you know, for those that might not know you, you know, obviously you went and, and you know, this is a rich document, but how, how did, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you end up, you know, studying this both personally and, and professionally? Sure. Well, as a, <clears throat> as a believer and a Christian, I was, I was a fan of the, of the book of Ephesians. But long ago, back in the mid eighties, I had a specific meeting with my doctoral mentor, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Ralph P. Martin. 
And Dr. Martin is a well-known evangelical scholar and author, and sadly died a few years ago. He's been a, a great friend and, and mentor to me, particularly in, in scholarship. But we had this meeting where I was needing to come to some conclusions about the topic in my dissertation. And I had a topic in mind. I wanted to explore the doctrine of humankind in death. Dr. Martin was not excited about me doing that. <laughs> I think he understood that Seventh-day Adventists have some well-articulated views around that topic. And he wasn't so sure he wanted me entering into a a space with foregone conclusions. He, he didn't express that. I'm, I'm intuiting. It happened at the time that he had an assignment on his desk to write a commentary on Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And you know how professors are. They're always looking for someone to help them in their next task. So at that moment, I heard the voice of Charles Bradford in my head, Michael and Buster. <laughs> and you conjure up the voice of Charles Bradford, <laughs> jowl shaking. Yes, we can. As a, as a kid, I used to listen to him at Georgia Cumberland Conference camp meeting in Collegedale, Tennessee. And I would sit enwrapped listening to this amazing African-American preacher. And I remember him more than once making the statements, statement, we Adventists need an ecclesiology. <laughs> And, you know, Seventh-day Adventist very, very negative view of the church, mm -hmm. often equating it with, you know, the medieval Christian church. And, and, and that has given us a kind of negative cast. And we haven't been as active as we could be in understanding the Bible's positive teaching and doctrine around the church. And so in that moment, the echoes of Charles Bradford and my, my, my doctoral mentor's needs for somebody to be working in the Ephesians space came together in a dissertation, dissertation topic that was the church in Ephesians, which eventually became a focus on metaphors for the church in the epistle to the Ephesians. And that's how I began to adopt Ephesians as a real focus of my scholarly work over the years. It was in that one, one determinative conversation. Wow. You know, that's pretty impressive, especially your, I guess you could say your Charles Bradford. That was very, <laughs> I, I felt it. I like that too. <laughs> but, you know, and speaking of that quote that you shared there, Ecclesiology, the book of Ephesians and the Seventh-day Adventist church. How does the book of Ephesians not just help the Adventist church, but how, how does it help the church flourish? Hmm. Uh, Paul in this, in this letter is, is writing broadly. And that's one of the things I really love about the letter. He's, he's not mucking about in, in local issues mm. so much as he does in say first and second Corinthians or first and second Thessalonians. He is focused on gospel cosmic scale, big picture. Ephesians together with Colossians uses the term ecclesia or church differently than in Paul's earlier letters, where it tends to mean local congregation. Though there are some discussions around that. But in Ephesians and, and, and Colossians, it means something like the church writ large, yeah. the church universal, the church 
multinational, multicultural phenomenon. Wow. And, and so it, it, it has a somewhat distinctive focus on the church and what the church means here. The, the, the letter is general. It, it is unpacking big, bold truths about Christ and the gospel and the church and the cosmic conflict and so on in a way that is amazingly accessible to us as, as modern or postmodern people. We, we, have, we have access to this in, in, an, in an important way. It's, it speaks to our time. And so Paul, Paul is worried, chapter 3, verse 13, that believers in Ephesus are losing heart. The glory days are past, the days of the miracles, the, the, the days when a Christian faith entered the streets of this sophisticated city and shook, you know, the, the political and economic infrastructure of the place. It was, it was cool to be a Christian back then, but now, you know, Artemis is again on her throne and, and Christianity is more likely to be held against you than, than viewed as an asset. He's Paul, the great hero is in prison. He's worried that they might lose heart, lose their sense of the importance of being a Christian. And so he's trying, Buster, to raise the horizon of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a member of Christ's church. And so he's, he's listing the importance of that by this cosmic scale teaching on what it means to be part of the church. Mm, I love that. You know, along with that, recently I heard a presentation and it's by a high school chaplain. And he said, he gives an exam over the fundamental beliefs of the church. And he said, the kids are passing it with flying colors, but he gives a simple question of what is the gospel? And he says, our kids are not able to explain it. And you just mentioned that word there, gospel. Can you, can you just bring it home, especially according to the book of Ephesians, where do we find the gospel and what is it? Well, Ephesians has, Paul in Ephesians, of course, has his own take on it. Now, there's, a, there's one of the great summaries, perhaps along with a passage like Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We, yes. we, know, it, we know it well, don't we? So it says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This sounds very much like Romans, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And then he goes on, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's his, his summation of the gospel. Now, together with that definition of the gospel, that, that wondrous summary of the gospel, yeah. we should probably look over the, the page to chapter three, because here he talks about the mystery of the gospel. And mm -hmm. so that, that summary occurs in a particular setting or framework where Paul is worrying over the relationships between Jews and Gentiles within the church. Okay. Now, he doesn't deal with this in quite such a tactile way as he does, say, in Galatians, where he's tackling issues like circumcision and, and so on. Here, he talks about Christ on the cross as doing a work at creation. 
creating one new man or one new humanity, chapter 2, verse 15. So he, he's, he's into this fact that at the cross, Christ makes Jews and Gentiles into one, fashions them, creates them into one new humanity. So he's interested in the horizontal relationships and the power of the cross, not only for vertical atonement, solidifying our relationship with God, our individual relationships with God, but what Jesus on his cross does to solidify horizontal relationships. You can think of this as vertical atonement and right. horizontal atonement, if, if you will. So he gets down here to chapter three and he's, he's unpacking this idea. He talks about the mystery of the gospel and he gives a definition in chapter three, verse six. This mystery is, so this is a kind of definition of the gospel as well, right? The mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, H-E-I-R-S, not E-R-R-O-R-S, right? <laughs> fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, Amen. the gospel of redemption, forgiveness in Christ is, is set in the context of Jewish Gentile relationships within the church and God's creation of the one new humanity and God's creation of the church in which Gentiles are full and complete partners with Jewish believers in being parts of this church of the risen Christ. You know, with that statement, you just defeated othering inside of the church, right? Bringing the church together and seeing that through the gospel, it is, and I love that, horizontal and vertical atonement. Man, it's absolutely wonderful. For me, yeah, chapter, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and its sketch of, of Christ's work on the cross is just breathtaking. Yes. Because it has no limits. We, we tend to focus on, if not limit, what Christ does on the cross to our personal salvation. And Paul in, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, just blows the socks off of any limited understanding of the atonement of Christ and, and wants us to see that he is, he is fundamentally transforming humanity. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Michael, you're going to say something? Yeah, well, I was just going to ask you because, you know, I'm just thinking about this in a post-COVID world, right? I mean, part of what we're talking about is, is what does it mean to have church? It seems almost, you know, I know these lessons get written a long time ago, <laughs> this Sabbath school quarterlies and everything. So, but, but I'm, so I'm sure you wrote this pre-COVID and, but, but now we've had this and a lot of people are asking questions about what is the church, right? And, and people had to stay home and everything else. And so here the church is a big part of this. So what, what do you think, Pastor Paul? I mean, this is a little difficult because obviously we live in a different time, but but what are some of the important themes and lessons, you know, of, of the church and this understanding of the church that can speak to our time today in this, this post-COVID world? That's a very good question, Michael. I did did do most of this work pre-COVID, though I suppose final submissions and things were 
early in the in the pandemic. And, and I'd just like to celebrate yeah. that we got this far into this podcast without mentioning the pandemic. So signal <laughs> that some some norm something normal is creeping back into our lives, which is a, right? a, a really good thing. But yes, the pandemic had a powerful impact on us and and in in many respects not not such a good one. It seems to me, and I, I could be off on my diagnosis here, but Western Christianity and Western Seventh-day Adventism is already a, a highly individualized phenomenon. That is, we tend to come to church in our silos like a collection of phone booths trying to communicate. <laughs> yeah. And, and that obviously the, the phenomenon of church, as Paul knows and understands it, is radically different from that. I mean, go to his little sketch of Christian worship in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Now, it's, this, is, this is a valuable little passage because we just don't have a lot of descriptions of early Christian worship. All right? So take a moment to imagine the setting in Ephesus. Now, it's been five to seven years since Paul did his evangelistic work in the city. What we, what we intuit here is that Christianity, though under some pressure, persecution is probably a, a bit strong of a word. It's more like social pressure is, mm -hmm. is the dominant way Christians are, are suffering, if you will. But and they're 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 under they're under this pressure, they're they're struggling, they're they're having a difficult time, and and Paul wants to accent the wonders of what it means to be part of the church, and in this setting he gives us this little sketch of worship. If you put this together with the household code or rules for the Christian household in Ephesians five thirty one through six nine, you can kind of begin to. Imagine yourself in one of this now network of household churches, house churches that's grown up in greater Ephesus, fourth, third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. So probably in this five to seven years, the movement has grown. We're not talking about one little group of Christians somewhere on the side street in Ephesus. We're talking about a network of house churches throughout the region, which may explain a certain distance that Paul alludes to not, not knowing some of them personally and so on. And, and we, we can see, we can see the, the husband, father, slave owner there in the circle. We see slaves, men and women and children, members of the loose, non-legal standing slave marriages in the circle. We can see clients and customers because the Greco-Roman household was a much broader phenomenon than our, our Western nuclear family. We see this, this group gathered for worship mm. and, and there's, there's a lot of diversity in that crowd <laughs> in terms of social standing and all the rest, everybody from the pater familias, you know, the father, the slave owner, the husband, the ruler of all things under Greco-Roman culture and law, unlimited power over everybody else in the circle, if you will. And, and yet you have slaves and children and, and all the rest gathered there in all of their diversity. And it's, it's such to such a group that Paul's letter is directed saying, come together 
be unified in one body. Christ is building a temple out of you, slave and slave owner alike, husband and wife alike, children and parents alike. Christ is the risen Christ is in the business of using you as building materials in a brand new temple in which God is worshiped. Amen. And so he, he uses these metaphors to talk about what the church is and what it means to be unified as the church. And we need to understand the group he's, the group he's speaking to. We may think that we're terribly diverse and divergent in our points of view. We couldn't be any more, any more diverse or any more divergent in social standing and the like than those little groups in those house churches on the side streets of Ephesus and surrounding towns. And, and so we, we come to this with some wonder, Buster, and, and Michael, as we think of the post-COVID environment, and I think, could I hear here Paul saying to us, if you will, hey, come on, get, get off your sofa, get to church, <laughs> shoulder to shoulder. Well, this church, church is not a spectator phenomenon. I mean, look at back to 518 through 20, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then read verse 21 in this context, slave and slave owner and all the rest, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So for, for, for Paul, worship and church are very much a communal phenomenon. The far have been brought near. We are together. Now, I'm not criticizing those who, during the time of the pandemic, worship online and all the rest. I've, there's lots of different strategies to be together. But I'd like to push us away from the hyper, let me call it, the hyper-individualization of the phenomenon of Christianity and Adventism in the West, and particularly in North America. And I'd like to push us toward community, toward being the temple of God, toward being the body of Christ, toward being the militia of Christ, chapter 6, verses 10 through, through 20, and so on. And Paul imagines that being lived out in face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder, arm-in-arm community. And we, we ought to catch the cadence of that in the post-COVID era. I love that because, you know, it, just thinking about all of this, that, you know, a, a big part of this is church not as a, a spectator sport, but as community and being relational. How do we connect and relate with, with one another? And you know, I'm kind of thinking about this and I, I can't help but throw a little Adventist history in here you know, with, you know, like eight, 1888, Jones and Wagner, right? So they're really passionate. We need more Christ-centered approach to Adventism. And, and then I'm hearing, I'm still, I can't get Bradford out of my head. So I, I'm hearing his voice still, you know, about our need as a church for a more, a more to me, more intentional with, with our ecclesiology, right? So so Jones and Wagner, 1888, they're talking about Romans and Galatians, Romans and Galatians. It seems that always those two books get the spotlight. So, so what is it that, that, you know, 
Pastor Paul's very Christ-centered through the whole book of Ephesians. Why why does Ephesians get short shrift? Why do we struggle with our ecclesiology as as Adventists? That's a that's a that's a good question, Michael. Again, as I alluded to earlier, I think part of it's just our doctrinal history. And no. the church often had negative overtones to it. And perhaps we haven't been as intentional as we need to be about the positive side of, of church and what that means. Ephesians certainly, certainly is focused on the communal. It's certainly sure. focused on the creation of the church. The, the place of action is the church. Yeah. Uh, the, okay. So much so that you, in three verse 10, you have a kind of definition for the church's work, a job description for the church. Sure, so tell us about it. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God in creating the church out of both Jews and Gentiles is apparently his context here. So yeah. through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow. So God begins his work of unifying all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. That's the announcement of plot or the announcement of theme in the book of Ephesians, okay? And so God begins that work to head up everything in Christ in the church. And he expects the unity and the community and the collaboration and the esprit de corps that is on display there to signal to the evil supernatural powers in the heavenly places that their doom has begun, that God's grand plan is underfoot. Their days are numbered. Their days of divisiveness and anger and hatred and so on. They are put on notice by the life of the church, by its community, by its unity. They are put on notice that their, their doom is sure and it is approaching. So that's quite a job description for the church, isn't it? <laughs> you you it. know, I, I was going to say, I, I love that aspect of the church, ecclesiology, but mm. Ephesians for me as well has this element that pierces into the home as well. For the Seventh-day Adventist home, what does the, the book of Ephesians have to say, especially I've heard it misquoted, and probably probably a leading question here, but misquoted, wives submit to your husbands and and taken out of context and used to push that. But taking that, especially that chapter into context, what does Paul share about the, what the Christian home should look like? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a it's a it's a good question, Buster, and it's it's one that requires, I think, some real intentionality and care on our part. So let me give you an example. Sometimes the, the household code, the rules for the Christian household has three parts. Way back in what, the fifth century BC, Aristotle started this pattern by focusing on the three basic sets of relationships in society. And that was husband, wife, parents, children, slave, master, slaves. And so Paul, when he addresses the Christian household in chapter five, verse 21 through chapter six, verse nine, is taking up a, a trope, a topic 
that had become a commonplace based on Aristotle's example in Greco-Roman literature. Now, most of it, most of that writing, I could, I could quote, for example, the, the, the book of Sirach. Most of that writing is extremely negative and it is directed only to the dominant partner in those relationships. It addresses only the husband. It addresses only the father and it addresses only the slave master. And it does so from a, a specific perspective. You need to manage those relationships so that your underlings don't damage your reputation. Instead, you need to manage those relationships in a way that boosts your ego, your standing, and, and your reputation in the wider community. That, that's, basically, that's basically the summation. And, 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 you know, the way you're to treat wives and slaves and, and sons is, oh, you know, just would turns our stomach these days. Yeah. You see some of that cited in the quarterly and also in the companion book. So Paul's counsel to the Christian household sparkles in its context because he addresses what I'll call here the subjugated partner in each of those three relationships first. He actually addresses them. They're not addressed in, in the literature of the time. So he starts by addressing the wife. Then he addresses the children in the next pairing. And finally, he addresses the slaves. Wow. And, and then he addresses, he addresses the dominant partner next, husband, father, or parents in that case, and slave master. But he does so in a way to bound the nearly unbounded authority and power of the paterfamilias, this father, slave master, uh, husband figure in the Greco-Roman household. And, and so he's, he's bounding that authority through the example of Jesus. Amen. And I think we have to read this literature very carefully because we are not called to reproduce the social structures of the first century. Mm -hmm. These are pagan husks of, of, of social structures. And what Paul is doing here is he is filling the husks of those relationships with the values of the gospel, which <laughs> with the example of the self-sacrificing, mm. not egomaniac, Christ. And he's saying, husband, father, slave, master, look to Jesus. He liked Jesus. He sacrificed himself. He gave himself up for her. He was the bride price on the cross. Gave himself up for, for his bride, the church. Be like Jesus. Amen. Don't, don't be like, don't live up to the expectations society has for you to dominate all the people in your sphere of influence. Be like Jesus. And so we have to be careful. For example, I'm going to cite an example. The, the third set of relationships, slaves, slaves, slave masters, has often taken, just kind of poured it over to employer-employee relationships. <laughs> have you noticed? Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and broadly speaking, that can, be, that can be helpful. Paul again and again and again says to the slave, Make a grand substitution. Put Christ in the place of your slave master. Serve Christ. Right. And certainly that works for 
difficult, challenging relationships in the workplace today, that broad principle. But I'm a little concerned that we might, in porting that over, we, we might grant to employers the powers and so on that Greco-Roman society granted slave master. And, and, and we live at a time when in, in many countries of the world, the, the Christian influence, Christianity has influenced politics and political structures and social structures. And we have expectations of the way employers ought to, te- ought to treat employees. This is not a slave master slave relationship. And, and so the, we have laws and regulations and so on. And we ought to be careful we don't work against that Christian influence that has expressed itself down through the decades of time and, and be very careful. So I like to treat chapter 521 through 6, mine, mostly by analogy, meaning here we have the privilege of watching Paul speaking to Christians in the first century and saying to them, here are the, the, the social structures of your time. And what you need to do is fill them with the values of the gospel. And by analogy, we need to do the same thing today. Our social structures as they exist in our society aren't perfect either, right? No. Yeah. And we, we are called to bring the gospel to bear upon our social relationships as they're configured within our culture and to look to the self-sacrificing Jesus as our example about how we treat others. And, you know, un- unbelievably, Paul draws members of the Christian household together and says, submit to one another. Amen. And he says to, to slave masters, as he turns to, to discuss them, he says, do the same to them. So he's been telling slaves to submit <laughs> as to the Lord and all this kind of thing. And then he says to the slave masters, do the same to them. Wow. I mean, this is, it's just, can you imagine the slave master's eyes as he hears this letter read out? I'm supposed, what? I'm supposed to treat my slave the way that my slave is supposed to treat me. What is up with this? Uh, But we are to look to the self-sacrificing Jesus to say, in the context of our society and our time and, and, and these three set, these these relationships, obviously we don't have the slavery one quite so active. And, and we look to our relationships and we say, how in the values of the gospel, how can the forgiveness and the grace that I've received in Jesus how can I express that in my relationships with my wife, in my relationships with my children and so on. You know, if, if I hear correctly, we are called to replicate many of the principles that are found in Ephesians, but not necessarily the constructs. And so placing that in our time today. Nice way to put it. I think we have to go to some effort to try to understand the first century context of which Paul, Paul speaks. That's, and I think there are broad principles that speak cross-culturally and across time here. Don't deny that at all. But we must do that work with, with some care and Amen. some understanding of what Paul is doing here. And a number of scholars, as you'll know, Buster, treat the household code as in enforcing and undergirding the patriarchy of the first century. 
and as domesticating Christianity mm. and trying to get Christians to behave so that they're approved in the context of the time. But there are some strong voices, particularly evangelical New Testament scholars out there who treat it as countercultural, moving against the, the stream of the culture, which is much as I've suggested here earlier. And, and I believe that's a truer and more accurate understanding of what Paul is doing as he lays out these words of guidance, these rules for Christian households. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate you drawing that out. And, and I mean, there's some contextual things that you shared there that I, I wasn't even, I, I, w- I think I've heard it mentioned before, but your detail in there, I think is eye-opening for me. And hopefully it's eye-opening to the church as we, as we move forward. Michael, it looked like you were about to say something. Oh, I was just saying no easy proof texting here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, none. Yeah, I like it. So well, we, have to be, we have to be very careful. If I could speak a word here, Buster, on, on the, the husband-wife relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, Colossians and Ephesians have a very close relationship, literary relationship. Yes. It, it's it's in, the, in the range of the relationships among the synoptic gospels. Okay, it's, it's a very close literary relationship. The two appear to be written or composed on kind of the same outline with... Ephesians having a, a lot more emphasis on the church. And so you can see the, 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 the segments on the church are included in Ephesians. They're, they're, that's not so strong in Colossians. Argument about which is written first and so on. I, I'm a little agnostic on that point. But they have a very close relationship, which means that we can, we can use Colossians to help us understand Ephesians on, in some ways. So... One of the statements in the household code that's a little troubling to many people is 5 verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I think we have to be careful how we understand that phrase as to the Lord, because that can mean that some would take that to mean that you need to submit to your husbands in the place of Christ. He is he is your, he, he is your Lord. <laughs> no. but here's, where, here's where Colossians really helps us because here's its analogous statement. Colossians 3 verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Yes. And, and what I see Paul doing there as he does in the, in the child parent relationship and as he does in the slave-slave-master relationship, he's pointing the subjugated partner, the, the partner that's regarded in the wider society as subjugated. He's pointing them to an ultimate relationship that is more important to them than their relationship to husband, father, or slave-master. And it's the relationship with the risen Christ. So submit yourselves to your husband but only in so far as that is fitting in the Lord. Amen. And, and I believe in these phrases by verse 22, as to the Lord is, is again, pointing the wife to that ultimate relationship, reminding her that she is a believer and that she has a relationship with someone, capital S, who is still more determinative and more important and more central for her than is her husband. Mm. And even there in the the literary context, in the breaking down, the exegesis, 
we can see, man, there's, it's so much richer and deeper than is just on the surface. And I, I love that. And also looking at the, your, this great hermeneutics there, because as we're looking at the Bible as a whole and making sure it does, it's not contradictory and seeing Colossians and Ephesians connected there, I, I think it's so important. Ellen White has a wonderfully tart statement about all of this, Michael. And I think I included it in Friday's, Friday's lesson. I'm trying to find that. While you're looking for that, I just want to mention the, you know, it also talks about in, in this kind of upending with Christ, you know, to husbands to, to love their wives. And so this self-sacrificial love, again, is at the, the center of this dynamic between husbands and wives. So it's not, not exerting power to control someone else, but rather exactly the opposite. The self-sacrificing love of Christ is the, the relinquishing of power, right? And so it's, it, it seems to me, if I'm hearing you right, it's, it's the actual reversal of that. Yes. Uh, page 86 of the, the what, we, what we have in is called the quarterly, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> page 86 in the quarterly on Ephesians. I, I share a couple of elephant quotes. I really find these, this is before, this is before women had the right to vote. Okay. Right. So she's writing out of a, still a rather different context than our own. And she writes, do not try to compel each other. This speaks to your point, Michael. Do not try to compel each other to yield to your wishes. You cannot do this and retain each other's love. Mm. Kind, patient, and forbearing, considerate, and courteous. She, no, she's addressing both marriage part, right? The admins on page 118. And then a couple of pages before, she, she's, she's discussing Colossians 3.18 and Ephesians 5.22 through 24. And she says, the question is often asked, shall a wife have no will of her own? Now watch her exegete passage. She's working primarily on Colossians here. The Bible plainly states that the husband is the head of the family. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. If this injunction ended here, we might say that the position of the wife is not an enviable one. <laughs> Many husbands stop at the words, wives submit yourselves, but we will read the conclusion of the same injunction, which is, as is fit in the Lord. Mm. Fascinating. Watch her at work on this text. God requires that the wife shall keep the fear and glory of God ever before her. Entire submission is to be made only to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has purchased her as her, his own child by the infinite price of his life. There is one who stands higher than the husband to the wife. It is her redeemer, and her submission to her husband is to be rendered as God has directed it, as is fit in the Lord. Amen. Now, that's some, <laughs> that's some pretty tart exegesis slash application of, of scripture. Yes. I can imagine her writing it as she's sitting across from James, looking at him as she's reading. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and Michael could talk to us about their relationship and, and the challenges that they confronted and, and so on. It's a little difficult to imagine that there wasn't a little of that personal history as she writes. Yes. <laughs> well, prophets are, are human and there's all these dynamics, but I love what you mentioned, Dr. McVeigh, about you know, that context is we tend to even look back at Ellen White as if she were alive today. She wasn't. This was, that was a very progressive statement for her time. Hugely. Very much so. 
Well, this is amazing. I, you know, I've just been enchanted with the the whole book of Ephesians. That is just such a powerful book that oftentimes gets short shrift, but but has a lot to say for for the church, for specifically for the Adventist church today that we can learn from that. So I'm excited that we're going to be delving into this through the whole quarter coming up. And and this is this next question may be one of the hardest in in that, you know, there's there's just so many beautiful parts, but but if you had to choose, it's almost like choosing which one's your favorite child, right? If you had to choose a passage, and maybe it's just your favorite passage today, I don't know. What would that passage in Ephesians be? Well, that is a that, that is a tough choice because I do hate to choose among my children. <laughs> and that there are a lot of for me, the life texts in, in Ephesians, in, in a social media post, one of my longstanding students and friends who knew me back in the mid, in the mid eighties said, I, I think you've been working on this, on Ephesians since about 1986. Yeah. And so I, I responded a little cattily and said, you know, yeah, you're about right. That's about when I started the, my serious academic work on, on Ephesians. But there's a more important date than when I started working on Ephesians. And that's when Ephesians started working on me. Hey. Yeah. And, you know, for me, there, there's an academic side to this. And I've, I've written, you know, peer-reviewed articles and a dissertation and so on and so forth about Ephesians. And I, I love the academic challenge that it presents. But it's... It's the challenge of living into this letter and its glorious cosmic scope gospel. It's, it's amazing portrayal of the work of Christ and trying to live into that. So in that spirit, I'll, I'll choose today in this moment, at least Ephesians chapter two. And, oh, I would probably, you know, Ephesians has tapeworm sentences, so it's hard to break into them, but so let's say. Chapter two, verses four through seven. And I, I allow me to read that and then describe why, why I find it so meaningful. But God, two of the most wondrous words in the English language, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a Amen. lot about that, that passage. I love the ending there, which, which reveals God's intention that the gospel doesn't cease when time ceases mm -hmm. throughout the, in, in the ages to come. In the coming ages, he is going to be pouring out his grace and his kindness upon us. Hallelujah. Amen. Yes. No constraints, no chronological constraints to this gospel. But at the heart of this passage is a trajectory that Christ scribes, if you will, across the cosmos. He is resurrected from death. He ascends to heaven 
and he is exalted at the throne of the Father, which becomes his throne, right? He is seated on the throne of the cosmos. And I take those three events to be reflected in verse six. He has raised us up with him, doesn't apply to resurrection, but to ascension. If you track earlier in the passage, we were already raised from the death of sin, right? Right. Now we are raised up. We, we ascend with Christ and, and seated us, made, well, made us alive is verse five, made us alive together with Christ. So we're resurrected with Christ uh, and raised us up with him. I take that as a description of the ascension. So we're resurrected with Christ, we're ascended with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So there is some way here that Paul says this, this ark has been scribed across the cosmos. Christ is resurrected. Christ is ascended. Christ is exalted. And guess what? You are so tight with Jesus you, that you are implicated in those same three events and they happen to you. You are made alive. You are raised up, you're ascended with Jesus, and you are seated with him in the heavenly places. Amen. Now, Buster, I cannot give you, I've, I've pondered this, and, and I, I share some of my ponderings in the companion book, but you can look at this a number of different ways. But I'll tell you, it, 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 it's just so wondrous that I keep coming back to it, pondering and say, oh, Lord, I'm not sure I can get my head around all of this glory and this wonder that you sketch out in these little verses here. But help me this day to, to live in, to being so tight with Jesus that it might be said that I'm resurrected with him, I'm ascended with him, and I'm, I'm exalted with him in heavenly places. Help me to be that tight with Jesus today. Oh, it's just you know, you just took us to you just took us to to church, and I don't want to leave. <laughs> Leaning in, I love yes. it. Yes, you you know, you yeah. keep mentioning these extra resources, and I, I'm looking forward to actually getting some of these. But before we even start this podcast today, we want to hear some more about the resources that our listeners can tune into, can pick up, can read, can listen, all those different things. So. Please share with us some extra resources that, that are available for this quarter. Well, I'll, I'll be happy to do that, Buster, but let me just remind you that the big task is to focus on the text. And Amen. We have the, the wonderful privilege of taking Ephesians passage by passage. And so please focus. Don't get so caught up in reading a whole bunch of other stuff that you're not spending good time with the text. Amen. But if you spent good time with the text and you'd like to see how I and others have, have done some of that, I, I, I'd commend some additional resources to you. So with Eric Flickinger, who is the host of It Is Written Sabbath School, I have recorded the treat, about a half hour treatment of, of each lesson. And so you can go to itiswritten.tv forward slash Sabbath dash school. And you can access those. They will drop week by week, Sabbath by Sabbath through the, the quarter. And you can see, um, listen in, watch as Eric and I discuss each passage in a bit, in, in a bit more detail, of course, than we've been able to do here today. Walla Walla University also has its own Sabbath school, podcast or, or audio recordings. 
shorter time frame, 15 minutes. So if 30, 30 minutes is too long, you can go to the 15 minute version. It's called the good word. And I shared that 15 minutes for each week with Grant Berglund and Alden Thompson. You can go to www.goodword.com. And the advantage of going there, and again, it drops Sabbath by Sabbath. <clears throat> but if you go there and access that, you'll see that there's quite a comprehensive study guide that I have written that is available through the Good Word site. And that mm -hmm. will offer some some good help, particularly from teachers and others. There are some questions and, and some answers that I provide that could be really useful. And, and also some geographies of additional resources. If you have a, an academic bent to you and you want to access my academic articles on Ephesians, you can go to academia.edu, find my profile, which you can probably get at by saying John McVeigh Ephesians. And you'll see quite a number of papers and resources there on various topics that might be of interest. Excellent. So, and, and since you're an academic, I'm, I'm just curious to nudge you a little bit. You know, your advisor was working a commentary on Galatians. Is there one or two? I mean, I know you've got some of these further resources, but do, do you have a favorite that, that you've particularly appreciated or enjoyed of those? I, I can think of several on my bookshelf. So I'm, I'm just, just curious. You know, there's, there's a, a lot of, a lot of great literature on, on it. There piece. is. If I were to stick with commentaries sure. and, and were to, to recommend one or two, I'm turning to the, the biography in, in the commentary that I've written on Ephesians. And by the way, the Seventh-day Adventist International Bible Commentary is in process of being published. And I have written the segment on Ephesians, which is there. I would certainly want to recommend that to you, right? Uh, but Lynn... L-Y-N-N Kochick, C-O-H-I-C-K, okay. a woman scholar, has written one of the more recent commentaries on Ephesians. It's in the New International Commentary on the New Testament series, and I'm quite impressed with it. So if you want kind of a, a large, full commentary on Ephesians that's recent and up-to-date in a scholarship, well-written, I would probably recommend that one. If you want something a little bit smaller compass, the, the one that I would recommend would be by Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Fowl, F-O-W-L. It is a 2012 volume that is part of the New Testament library. And it's a rather slender volume, but uses those pages very, very well. Mm. Flex on academic issues in sane and helpful ways and exegetes the letter helpfully. I, as a, as a commentary in shorter compass, I would certainly recommend Stephen Fowles commentary. Well, thank you, Dr. McVeigh. This is just thrilling to be able to engage with you and to hear a little bit and be tantalized to engage with the text, to engage with Pastor Paul and let his, through the words of scripture, speak to our will today. And so you've been listening to the Sabbath School Rescue Podcast. We've been interviewing John McVeigh, the principal contributor for the new lesson quarterly. And we want to thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Sue. And Swoops. Signing, signing out. out. As we wrap up, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Adventist Learning Community, a ministry of the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists. 
You can join us each week by subscribing on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Also, make sure you share with as many people as possible. And be sure to give us feedback by rating our podcast and go to our website, sabbathschoolrescue.org, for each weekly episode.